And the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge for his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise, go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house, and they said, It is because of the money which was replaced in our our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food, and when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down with us too, to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and, your, your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when they had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they had heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is, this, is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out. And controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for this is an abomination. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. Then he commanded the steward of his house, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. 
As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men. And when you have overtaken them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks? And by this that he practices divination? You've done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. And they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How could we then steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also shall be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say, my Lord? What shall we speak, or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he, is al he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set it, my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your father, my, your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us then, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. 
Now, therefore, please, let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Chapter 45. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with them when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler of the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son, Joseph, God has made me lord over all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me. You and your children, your children's children, your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that is living and active. God, thank you for your word that tells us about you. That tells us about your divine purposes working in and through the circumstances and trials and hardships and difficulties and famine. Thank you for your word which reveals that your sovereignty is at work in all things. Thank you for your word which reveals that you give us your compassion, you show us your mercy, your loving kindness, your long suffering. Lord, thank you for your word that shows us that you are the God who's at work to reconcile us. To reconcile your people to yourself. Father, I pray that through the preaching of your word, we might see you more fully. God, I pray that you would give grace to those who are hearing, Lord, grace to me as I preach. 
Lord, thank you that you have compassion on us. That you are merciful, that you are slow to anger, abounding in love. Thank you that you are a reconciling God, that you are about bringing us to you, Lord. You are about erasing our guilt and setting us free from slavery. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Imagine that you are in the midst of some dire circumstances in your life. Maybe they seem bleak, they're painful, that where you're either suffering or you're about to suffer, on the verge of suffering. For some of you, maybe you don't have to imagine this morning. Maybe you are in the midst of bleak and dire circumstances. Maybe you are in the midst of suffering. Maybe you're facing challenges, potential hunger. Maybe you're living hand to mouth, always facing poverty. And this condition, it looms over for years. Imagine you're in that setting. Imagine you're in a foreign land where the locals are hostile towards you. Where you don't know people around you and, and you're unwelcome. You, you might begin to wonder, where is God in all of this? How can this be God? How can this be good? How can God be with me right now? Where is God's hand? How can God be at work? Has God abandoned me? Maybe those are questions that you already have in your mind. Maybe those are questions you're asking yourself today. Can any of this possibly be good? Is God angry with me? Will He be able to deliver me from these circumstances? And if He does not deliver me from these circumstances, because at times God does not deliver us from the circumstances, but enables us to bear up under them. So if He does not deliver us from these circumstances, can I trust Him? Maybe you've wondered that before. Maybe you're wondering that now. Is He really good? Is He really trustworthy? Does He really love me? And if He does love me, why does He let these bad things happen to me? It's been many years, maybe, for, for a few of you. You might be wondering, why does it hurt so much? Why am I all alone? These are irrelevant questions. Most of us don't have to imagine a season in our lives where we've experienced those emotions, where we've experienced those feelings, where we are encountered with those questions that seem to come with no answers. Wouldn't it be good if you had something to show you who this God is that you were following? Couldn't you really use a concrete example or illustration that you could relate to? Wouldn't it be good if God could just show you who He was and demonstrate His character and His nature? The good news is that God has done that through His Word. And this account in Genesis does just that for us. It answers some of those most critical, key, crucial questions in our lives that we are faced with. We're wondering, where is God in the midst of difficulty? Where is God when I'm suffering? Am I all alone? And can this be good? Can God love me? And if this is a loving God, why is this happening to me? God has given us these passages in Genesis to reveal who He is and His marvelous plans at work in and through human events. These are very real people. Through very real circumstances, through trials, through world hunger, through famine, through the orchestrating of weather patterns. It's through very real suffering, through very real pain, 
through very real hardship and famine. That God is bringing about His purposes. And he's, he's, he's bringing about His purposes to rescue and reconcile a people to Himself. You may at times be asking yourself some of those questions we went over a moment ago. And yet God is at work. God is at work sovereignly bringing about His purposes to rescue and reconcile a people to Himself. To make people into His image. To conform us into His likeness. Not because He's angry but because He's compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Because God is a compassionate, merciful God. At times, sometimes He uses difficult circumstances to make us into His image because He loves us. The people of Israel, hearing this account for the first time, 400 years later, they've they've been delivered from Egypt... They need to understand. They need to put their history in context. They need to be able to make sense of the past. They need to be able to make sense of their present as well. And that's how these verses function for them and for us. They needed to understand their dire circumstances in light of who God was in His prior work and, and who God was making them be now. They needed to know that they could have peace with God. Don't we need to know that as well? We need to see that God's at work. We need to know that we can have peace with Him, that He has compassion on us. He's merciful. It's not His anger. In our account, the famine had not abated. That's not a small word. The famine had not stopped. It had been two years. About two years since they left Simeon and their brother behind. And the famine had gotten worse God sovereignly orchestrating all the events and the world's weather patterns. They continued and the famine was severe. And in those days famine was not unusual. And so for them to say famine was severe, it means it. It means they weren't eating. It means they were facing the challenge of, will I be able to provide for my family tomorrow? Will I be able to feed my babies? Will they live and not die? Civilization was dependent on regular rainfall. It was still largely an agrarian society. This was a severe challenge. Prior to large-scale mechanized farming and planting and harvesting, they didn't have any genetic engineering back then. You didn't have to worry about labeling. It says no GMOs or whatever those things are you worry about now. And they didn't have to worry about all oh, the, the bovine growth hormones. They wish they had them. Um, this was severe and it was deadly and it threatened their lives and their families. So Jacob... He kind of makes this understatement. He says, well, go and buy a little food. They didn't just need a little food. They needed quite a bit. And he sends them to Egypt. And he seems to forget or maybe ignore the obvious fact that, oh, hang on. Wait a minute. My, my second eldest son happens to be in prison there. He just kind of glossed over that fact. And he kind of glossed over that the man of the land said that unless Benjamin went with him that there's no way they could come and buy a food. And there's no way that it gets Simeon back. So Judah, he, he now takes a place of leadership. And he effectively speaks on behalf of all the brothers. He says, Dad, the only way that we're going to get Simeon back, the only way we're going to buy food, there's just not a chance we're going unless we take Benjamin with us. He says, the man clearly said, we wouldn't even see his face unless we brought our brother with us. And yet Israel, he's still self-centered in this portrait, isn't he? Jacob is still just self-focused. And and he says, you know, why do you treat me so badly? He's just so self-aware. He's more aware of his feelings, how he's been affected. And he's only aware of their offenses against him. You ever ever 
Get in that mode where you're, you're more aware of your own feelings. You're more aware of everybody else's offenses against you. And that's all you can see is their offenses. And really, you're the, you're the biggest offender in the room. He can only see how he's been affected. And he doesn't seem to see his offense against Simeon, the guy he's left in jail for two years. Against the other brothers, against the family, the hardship and suffering they've encountered because of his stubbornness and selfishness. And that, that's so often the case with us too, isn't it? We hold on to our own desires. We hold on to what we think will buy us happiness. What we think will secure safety and surety. We, we think that God's called us in our direction. We just hold on to it as strongly as possible. And, and the Bible will call that an idol. And then we hold on to our own offenses so strongly. When we don't get what we want and we, something's challenging our idols. That we can't even see that we're actually contributing to the problem. That we're the problem. It's like a pair of safety glasses that I have. I've got this pair of safety glasses. I left them outside on top of the trash can in the sun and went back out and put them on. And, and after a few minutes, I was starting to get a headache. And I was like, wow, what's going on? And I didn't quite notice. My vision was kind of affected by them. I was getting dizzy. I couldn't see. I couldn't walk right. I thought, something's wrong with me. Well, duh. It was the glasses had warped in the sunlight. And, and it, it had changed my vision, and it was imperceptible almost until I realized, okay, wait a minute, maybe this is something I just did. So I took them off, put them down. Oh, okay, I'm all better now. Um, idolatry is, is often like that. It's, it's, it's subtle. It's almost imperceptible. It's, it's, it, it subtly warps and changes our visions and changes our perception of the world around us. And left unchecked, it can, it can make us blind to seeing reality, make us bitter, make us resentful. So that our whole view of life and others is distorted and it causes all kinds of headaches. So all the brothers, they reply to Jacob and they really, they said, you know, Dad, we were just telling the truth. He was asking us questions, we answered him. What did you expect us to do? And there's no way that they could know that he would want their brother there too. Then something remarkable happens in this story. And it changes everything. And here's what happens. It's, it's something that's happened on the inside. Something that God had been at work doing. Over the last couple of weeks we've been seeing how God has been chipping away at the brothers. He's been chipping away at their hearts. He is, he's been making them aware of their guilt. He's been giving them sorrowful situations. He's been instilling the fear of the Lord in them. And through those things, God has been at work to change the brothers. And there's been a change in Judah and the brothers now. So instead of where before Judah was the one who spoke up, but he spoke up to betray his brother, to sell him into slavery. Now, now Judah speaks up and he's changed. You see, God has used circumstances and situations and hardship and suffering and to change Judah. So Judah says, look down in your Bible, he says, I will be a pledge. I will be a pledge of his safety. Is this the same Judah? This is the same guy who was selling his brother out for 20 pieces of silver, two pieces a person? And he says, I'll be a pledge for his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I don't bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. This was a guy who didn't accept responsibility before his father, never admitted that he was to blame for selling Joseph out. And yet now, a change has transpired. Why is that? Because God's changed him. God's changed Judah and God's changed the brothers. And there's an important point for us to see is that God's people get changed by God. That's good news for us, isn't it? We don't have to change ourselves. We don't have to worry about 
Will I be able to change? Can I change myself? You know what? God has ordained the circumstances in your life so that He will bring about change in your life. Maybe you're hopeless. Maybe you're thinking, I don't think I can ever change. I'm not sure I can ever be different. God's people, here's good news for us, they get changed by God. And it's imperceptible at times. We don't know exactly how. We don't see it overnight. We, we rarely, if ever, see the process. But through circumstances, through daily life, through arguments with your spouse, through you realizing that you were bonehead, through you missing appointments, through you just sinning and realizing that, oh, I need a Savior. God changes His people. And God continues to change His chosen people. And that's good news for you and I this morning. We can have hope that God is at work changing His chosen people. He changed His chosen people back then. He continues to change His chosen people today. We can have hope that God is changing us, even if we don't see it, even if we don't know that change is occurring in our lives. Clearly, the brothers needed a change of heart, didn't they? They were some bad dudes with bad attitudes, not owning up to anything, and yet God has been at work. And then here's something cool happens. Jacob, this self-centered guy just a few moments ago, he's changed in response. As he sees God at work in his boys, as he sees God at work in his sons, he realizes, how can I, how can I not respond to? And that's, that's one, one of the wonderful benefits about being a community together in the church. He says, as we share the experiences of what God's doing in our lives, as we see other people change, it makes us want to respond to God as well. And we see that happening with Israel. And so he's softened by the selfless act from Judah, and he realizes his mistake. And in, in the midst of that, actually, there's, there's one ironic little point, is that he tells the brothers to take down the same goods, the, the gum, the myrrh, the balm. That list was the same list that the brothers... Um, sent Joseph with the Ishmaelites. The Ishmaelites were taking gum and burr and, and uh, gum and myrrh and balm down to burr. I don't know what burr is, but gum and myrrh and balm down to Egypt as well. And with the silver, instead, his brothers are now taking the silver back along with the very same gifts that were used in Joseph's betrayal. Well, Israel, he, he's changed. Jacob is, is changed through seeing their change and he looks up from his self-pity and there's a lesson here for us as well. When we're mired in self-pity, what can we do? How can we respond? Look up from self-pity and he looks up the first time in the story he points directly to who? God. God Almighty. El Shaddai. And he prays that he would be granted mercy. This is the first time we see him throughout this, this Joseph narrative. This is the first time we see that Jacob now has faith. He looks up and sees God and he cries out to God and says, May El Shaddai have mercy. And from this account we can see that it's God Almighty. It's God Almighty who gives mercy to His people. Why is that? Because God gives mercy to His people. God's people receive mercy from God. And that's good news for us. Not only does God change His people, God gives mercy to His people. So Jacob realizes now through, through God's merciful discipline that his grasping, his holding on to his family, his own attempts at securing his future and him securing his destiny, keeping the promises of God through trusting his own means, it's not going to work. So he finally throws himself on the merciful providence of God. It's at times like, like that for us. Well, we can hold on to our idols so strongly. And act as if we control our own destiny. You ever find yourself there? We can act as if we know what's best. As if we're the ones that have to bring about 
what we think is right and good. And we can get to the place where we demand a certain outcome from God. God, I just, I just want this. I just want a new job. I want a better boss, a better co-workers. I want, to, I want to be married. I want to be healthy. I want to be wealthy. I want to, I want to be smarter. Whatever those things are. All those good things can actually become idols that we hold on to when we say, I, de- I need this for my happiness. Instead of saying, you know, I, w- I want to depend upon the mercy of God. God Almighty El Shaddai. And I'm going to look to Him. Sometimes we, we hold on to our idols so strongly and, and God mercifully rips them out of our hand. As He mercifully ripped the idol of his sons out of his hand. He realized he he, he didn't have a choice. He didn't have a choice. He had to give up Benjamin. He already given up Joseph. I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. I'm going to trust God now. Times we don't let go on our own. He, He does that for us as well. But that's a merciful thing. It's for our own good. You see, it can be very difficult the more we hold on. But God loves us so much. He doesn't want us to hold on to things that will never satisfy us. He has mercy on us to take away our idols. And it's painful sometimes. Earlier this, this year, I took away the training wheels from, from my daughter uh, on her bicycle. Um, in February, getting ready for the riding season, we love to go downtown and, and ride on the Swamp Rabbit Trail there. and um, It's a great thing, but... Uh, it's not as much fun when you have training wheels. You kind of ride like this for a minute, and then you ride like this for a minute, and then you ride like this for a minute, and you can't really go fast, and it's, it's not very stable. It's not as much fun. It's not as freeing. You're kind of bound to what the training wheels allow you to do. And So I took the training wheels on the bike, and it scared her. <laughs> and uh, they, she thought I was being mean. And we, it was a terrible time. It was terrible. She was in tears, and I was saying, "No, you have to do it." And I was like, I felt like a, a jerk, and 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 you know. But I'm like, I'm, but I'm really doing this because I want to free. I want to. I want her to experience freedom and be able to ride on her own. And and through some tears and painful falls, now she's um, she's cruising. She's she's cruising. She's doing great. It only took two times, and uh, she's enjoying it like she could never had before. She would never have been able to enjoy it if I'd left things safely where she wanted them. So, so God works at times in our lives to take away things from us that we think we need to be safe. Not because He's unkind, but because He's merciful. He wants actually to, to give us even better things that we can't ask or imagine. We, we can't even ask or imagine in our wildest imaginations the wonderful things that God has in store for us, and yet we hold on to the things we think we need most. But God is merciful. God's at work in Jacob, and God's at work in our lives, and He's, he's bringing needed change, and He shows us His mercy, and Joseph sees that They've brought another one with him, and he, he's hoping it's Benjamin. So he rushes back to his home. He tells the steward, prepare a feast for them, and brings him back to his house. But the brothers don't get it. And we see that, look down in verse 18 of chapter 43, they're still afraid of this man. They irrationally think that this man is going to take them, make them prisoners, and steal their donkeys. Like, he really wants some donkeys. Okay, this is the ruler of all of Egypt beneath Pharaoh. He's probably got some, some killer camels or something fast. He, he did, he's probably not looking for these ragged out, pathetic old Jewish donkeys. I guess donkeys aren't Jewish, are they, right? So they don't, they don't have nationalities. <laughs> Oy vey! <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, their fear and their guilt, it causes them to think a little irrationally. 
They go to the steward of the house. They explain that they didn't steal the money. We found it in the sacks. No, no, no. We, we found this money. We, we, we don't know how it got there. And, and we actually brought some more money back for you. And, and then the steward, he says something that's remarkable. It's meant to startle the, the hearer of this day. It's meant to startle us. The steward, this Egyptian steward, he uses very Jewish words. He says, Shalom Lechem, which means peace to you. He speaks peace to them. He speaks shalom. He speaks peace to them. And the mercy of God is evident in their interactions. Then he brings out Simeon. And God pours out more mercy through Joseph. They give him water, feed their animals, wash their feet. They've been treated with undeserved kindness and their offenses are forgiven because they receive Simeon back. They're quick to prepare the present they had brought in. Fulfillment of all Joseph's dreams is a cool scene where all the brothers bow down on their faces before him. I wonder what Joseph was thinking at that moment. He was probably aware of the mercy of God in his life. Thinking, oh, how merciful. I was a, a proud guy bragging about this dream, but now I see that now I'm just undone and grateful to God for bringing about what he said he'll do. He saw the mercy of God himself. Joseph's first question is about their father. He doesn't rub it in. He doesn't reveal himself quickly. and says, see, I told you, and I'm going to throw you in jail and make you pay. He extends God's mercy to them as well. As he's received much mercy, he extends mercy to them. And that's really our motivation as we extend any mercy to fellow brothers and sisters. Is not because we're such great people. It's because we've received unending mercy ourselves. So Joseph's first question, he says, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? After two years? <laughs> he didn't say that, but I would have. And they said, Let, Your servant, our father, is well. He's alive. And they fall flat on their faces before him. Not sure. Not sure what in the world would this man do next. Will he ask their father to come too? And Joseph sees them and he's overcome. But not overcome in the way you expect. You see, if this was me, I'd be overcome potentially with anger. But Joseph was more aware of God at work. He was more aware of God's mercy. He was more aware that God was working in and through the situation. He had a Godward focus that kept him grounded and said, how did he respond? He wasn't overcome with anger or malice or vindictive thoughts. Look down for a moment. What does it say he's overcome with? He's overcome with warm compassion. And he becomes an agent of compassion to his brothers. How could he do that? How could Joseph have compassion on his brothers? And I think it's because he saw the compassion of God in his own life. And there's a principle we can see is that God's people receive compassion from God. Like the brothers receive compassion from Joseph, we too receive compassion from God. He's overcome to the point that his affection is about to burst forth in tears of compassion. He's about to weep, so he rushes out. He finds a place to cry in the bedroom. He's, he's still not ready to reveal himself, though, because he needs to help confront their past sin of jealousy, and he hides his response from them. But his actions, they aren't motivated out of malice. They're motivated out of compassion, a warm compassion for his brothers that can only come from God. That kind of love only comes from God. God deals with us through compassion, even though God tests us. Joseph still tested his brothers, but he was dealing with them out of a motivation of compassion. And God deals with us that way. At times, we experience the testing of God, and yet it's out of a warm compassion that God tests us, not out of malice or because He wants to get even with us. 
He goes back in, he serves in the meal, he sits by himself, and he must have wanted to go and sit at the table with them. They're astounded. He seats them in birth order. They're like, whoa, this guy really is hearing some things from, from God or something. They're blown away. It's, it's not obvious because they all got beards. It's not clear who's the older, who's the younger here, and he sits in the right place. And then he does something that's interesting. Why does he do this? He gives Benjamin preferential treatment. Why does he do that? Well, he's testing the brothers. He's testing them to see, like he had been given preferential treatment from his father, and his brothers responded with jealousy and envy, how would they respond if they saw Benjamin getting preferential treatment? How would they respond? Had their character been changed? He needed to ascertain that. And so he tests them. Clearly, Benjamin was their father's favorite. He, he gives them five times more than any of them at the feast, and... And then the ESV, it translates, they, they drank and were merry with him. And I, I was looking in different translations in the Hebrew, and it actually says they became intoxicated. The brothers all got drunk. They were brought to the place where their, in, where their inhibitions were lowered. Even in them getting drunk, their inhibitions were getting lowered to the point where Joseph was going to be able to see them for who they really are because it has a unique way of revealing somebody's real character. So Joseph takes advantage of the state. He orders the money to be put back in and for his cup to be hidden in Benjamin's sack as a, as a test to see what would they do if they had a chance to betray their brother that was legitimate. They didn't have to make it up. They didn't have to lie. This would have been legitimate. They could have just handed Benjamin over. What would they do? If he gave them all their money back, now they know just, not just two pieces of silver each, they've got bags of money, multiple bags of money each. He's the favorite. Benjamin rightly could have been carried back into slavery. They would have been free to go. They could have told the dad the truth and all would have been okay. They would have been justified to go back. So he tests his brothers, and as soon as the morning was light, it says, they, they set off on their, their old ragtag donkeys. Probably wondering about the night before, you know, wondering, hang on, you know, did I, did I really get up on the table and sing? Did, uh, did Dan really get sick in the potted fern? What happened? Did this, had this man been so kind to us and hospitable and merciful to us? They're probably a little bit stunned but glad when they rode off on the donkeys. But it didn't get far because Joseph's steward is sent to pursue them. And he, he asked them, why do you repay good for evil? Why did you steal his cup from the man? They pride him in a very legalistic manner. They were self-righteous in a sense. And they said, you know, why would you insinuate that we would do such a thing? They responded by calling down swift judgment on any one of them. They were legalistic. If they did such a thing. And, and we tend to do the same thing. When we think that somebody has done something unthinkable, we demand that justice be carried out. Unless, of course, that applies to us. So, whoever's done this, let him be killed. That's an extreme legalistic response. But we tend to do the same thing. And the, the man changes what they say. He has mercy on them yet again. And he says, well, it's as you say. But then he doesn't say what they said. He says, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take whoever's done this and put them in prison and be a steward, a servant, and you all can go free. They can take an easy, convenient way out. They can abandon the brother as a cup. Not only that, it would be understandable. And He's making it easy for them to forsake their brother. He's testing their character. So the search begins. They find the cup in Benjamin's sack. But instead of tearing Benjamin's clothes off like they had torn... Remember, they tore Joseph's clothes off him because they were jealous of Joseph. They tore his clothes and they threw him into the pit. What do we see here? They tear their own clothes. There's repentance. There's change. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful, beautiful parallel. They tear their own clothes instead of tearing Benjamin's clothes off and blaming him. 
they blame themselves. It's a sign of anguish and mourning and repentance. And where they had abandoned Joseph to an unknown fate in Egypt, they didn't have to join him. It's crazy. They all saddled up and they went back with him. They, they sent Joseph alone, abandoned with traitors. And they said, no, we're going to treat our favorite brother with love. We're going to go down with him to Egypt. And so they went down with him to Egypt and they were free to go. And God was making them into a peaceful nation. God was making them into a true band of brothers. Making them united through this testing of hardship, guilt, fear, sorrow, sin. And now, only now, the brothers would be useful for God's purposes and He could make them into a great nation. Only now, after they've repented and acknowledged their sin, could God use them in the way He said He would. And so Judah, again, he speaks up when Joseph is waiting for him. But instead of how he spoke up before, he suggested they sell Joseph. Now with Benjamin, he suggests that he be the one. Something interesting here in Judah's retort. He doesn't, he doesn't say, we didn't steal, steal the cup. We don't know how the money got there. We didn't steal the money. He didn't say, Benjamin didn't steal the money. He didn't steal the cup. We, we, we're all innocent. He didn't justify himself. It's crazy. He could have. He should have. He, he didn't justify himself. He didn't make excuses. Even though Joseph was the means, he saw behind that that God was bringing conviction to him. And why is that God brings conviction to His people? His people are convicted by God. Even though Joseph was the means, the conviction that Judah and the brothers experienced it only came from God. Sure, they were guilty. They weren't guilty of taking the cup. But God, Judah says, God has found out our guilt. It doesn't matter about the silly cup and the silver. We're guilty of far more. God's convicted him. He doesn't even bother. Who cares if he's misrepresented? And, and really, for us today, often we'll be misrepresented by other people. We'll be maligned. People will accuse us of things that we're not guilty of. But the reality is, we're guilty of far more than that. So why should we respond in pride? Instead, we can respond in humility and say, God, thank you. There's a, a story that a guy named William Shakespeare wrote in, called Macbeth. And in Macbeth, the main character's wife, Lady Macbeth, she, she has convinced her husband to, to murder King Duncan. She gets to the point where she's racked with guilt and she's tormented by her guilt and, and the part that she played in murdering King Duncan. And, and, and this doctor and her gentlewoman, they, they observe Lady Macbeth. She's sleepwalking and she's madly trying to cleanse her hands. If you've ever read that story or seen the, the movie. Movies are not anywhere near what the story is. But she, she's madly trying to cleanse her hands of the blood of, of Duncan and, and Macduff's family. And she's still in her sleep. And she, she asks, she says, What? Will these hands never be clean? She still feels the, the blood guilt on her hands. and Sometimes it happens to us is that when other people accuse us of something, we're instantly made more aware of the underlying guilt that we feel like we can never get clean for something we've done. Judah, how does he respond? He responds in a, in a similar way. I don't care about this. I, I've, got, I've got bigger guilt than that. When things go poorly, sometimes I'm reminded of, of how I really deserve punishment. I'm reminded of my past sins. Are you, are you ever reminded of your past sins? 
you ever feel like your guilt surfacing and you feel like you can't escape your past sins? You can't wash? Will these hands never be clean? Well, see, on our own, we can never be free from guilt on our own. On our own, if we try to resolve guilt on our own, if we try to respond to God's conviction by purging ourselves, by cleansing, cleansing ourselves, we'll never be clean. I, I spilled... <laughs> I don't know what I was doing, but uh, I had bacon grease on my front porch. I, I think I was, I don't know what I was doing, smoking some meat in a smoker on my front porch. I don't know why I was doing that, but I thought it was a good idea. And um, I spilled some bacon grease on my front porch, and I, I've scrubbed it so many times, time after time, and I've tried to wash off the concrete. That stain just keeps coming back again and again and again. It keeps resurfacing and keeps coming back up. You know, my, my past foolish mistake of spilling bacon grease on the concrete stoop, it just doesn't seem to go away. And... I need to apply something stronger than soap to wash it away. You know, our, our past indiscretions, our, our past foolish mistake, our past, our past sins, our, our, our behavior that we're ashamed of, it can seem to keep coming back up again and again and again. You ever, you ever have that, those thoughts? We don't have to stay there. Here's our hope. Thanks be to God that... He sent His Son to do away with our sins and guilt. The shame and the guilt that no amount of penance, no amount of scrubbing can do away with. No amount of serving and volunteering. The only thing that washes the way is not soap. It's something more powerful. It's His blood. It's the blood of Christ Jesus that washes away. You see, no self-atonement will do. Only the atonement of Jesus Christ can wash our sins away. How do we respond to conviction? We don't wallow in our guilt. We say, no, let me be clean by you or I'll never be clean. Only the blood of Jesus applied to our sins makes us clean. And those things we know we deserve punishment about, they can be removed, but not by us in our own self-effort. But the blood of Jesus applied to our sins, it does make us clean. Those things we, we know we deserve punishment for, we're guilty of, it, it removed by, by the ultimate stain remover. <laughs> Scripture says He's washed us as white as snow. No spot or wrinkle or stain remains when He makes us clean. Even though you might have memories that still tell you you're guilty, if you place your faith and your trust in Jesus and His finished work atoning for you, you're no longer guilty. You don't have to try to hide. The, blood, the brothers don't hide anymore. They know they can make no excuses before God. And that's what we're called to do as well. Make no excuses. Confess our sins to God. Throw ourselves in His mercies. And He will make us clean. He goes and let test, test them further. Joseph tells him he's going to keep Benjamin a slave, but they can go in shalom. He uses the word peace. Actually, four times we see the peace. And they can have peace, go back to the Father with, without Benjamin. Instead, but Judah, he takes this great risk on himself. And he risks being punished. He, he risks being punished simply by speaking up in the presence of this, this second in command of all of Egypt. He should not have argued with him, and he takes great bodily harm. He risks bodily harm to himself. He risks himself and he sticks up and he, he does something astounding. He doesn't just blame it on Joseph. He does something really incredible. He does what Judah's eventual offspring would ultimately do. See, Judah offers himself as a ransom 
as a substitute for his brother. He offers to take the place of his brother, even though he was not guilty of this crime. He may have even wondered, maybe did Benjamin take the cup when he was drunk? It didn't matter. He couldn't see his, his brother and his, his father harmed anymore. And, and once this repentance was demonstrated, once this offer, this substitutionary atoning offer of Judah's was made, then true reconciliation can take place through the conviction and confession of his guilt, through offering of himself. Judah was reconciled to his brother, and through the one brother's selfless act, all the brothers were reconciled. And ultimately, this reconciliation, who did it come about by? Did it really come about by Judah's own effort? No. This came about by God. And, and that's the last thing that we're going to look at, is that God's people are reconciled by God. God's people are reconciled by God. Unless there's an, as an admission of guilt, unless there's acknowledgement of wrong and a price to be paid, there's no reconciliation. This reconciliation that came at a great cost to the brothers. They were offering to enslave themselves. And Judah was offering himself as a substitute for Benjamin forever, permanently. It was a costly proposition and it cost Joseph too. Joseph had to wait two years. It cost him. It was hard. He wept. And in our lives, isn't reconciliation costly as well? It was costly for Christ to reconcile us to God. But reconciliation with our fellow brother and sister is costly for us as well. You can't pretend as if we can be reconciled with brothers and sisters here, maybe sitting beside you in the church you have ought against, and it's going to be easy. Reconciliation is always, always costly. We don't have to gloss over sins and actions that don't happen. True reconciliation is born through the confession of sins, acknowledgement of wrong, and, and it requires humility. It may require pain, and it could mean that we personally suffer even when we're not guilty for the good of another. That's the kind of reconciliation we've been given by God. It means that we must let go of trying to self-justify. You ever do that? I do that all the time. No, I'm, I, I'm really in the right here. I'm, I'm, I'm justified. I'm right. I, I have a... I have a I, I'm okay, I can be angry. I, it's okay to be angry right now because I'm right. We have to let go of making excuses. Let go and trying to explain and be understood. And we need to be willing to take it on the chin for each other. For the good of another. And Judah's response, when it's clear, his brothers had truly changed. And, and they were repentant. Joseph couldn't take it anymore. And this is one of the most beautiful scenes of reconciliation in all of Scripture. Joseph is undone. He can't take it anymore. He weeps aloud. He says, get out, everybody. He doesn't demand justice, though. He doesn't demand that he be punished. He doesn't take vengeance on them. Even though he was right, and no one, not even his brothers, could have questioned his right to exact a pound of flesh for them. And isn't that our desire at times? And yet he does not do that. He does not exact the pound of flesh that he would have been justified to take. He's a model of forgiveness to us, isn't he? Isn't Joseph a model of forgiveness? He does what we must do at times. Don't ignore the pain. Don't ignore the hurt that was caused. But we're willing to take that pain. Be willing to take the hurt on ourselves and forgive despite it. You know, at times, we're going to be called to follow in the footsteps of Christ and count the cost and give up our rights not pretending they don't exist, but deciding to be merciful instead. It doesn't mean we ignore it. means we have to choose to have a godly perspective to see that this has come from the hand of God. And hasn't God been merciful to me? Hasn't God forgiven me a far greater? Hasn't God been 
loving? Hasn't God been kind, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love? couldn't have been easy for 13 years. He could not have seen any earthly good coming from it. When he was enslaved, when he was in prison, for 13 years of suffering, it was impossible for him to make those earthly connections of saying, this is good. And at times it's hard and impossible, it seems, to make those connections in our own lives. And yet he steadfastly trusts the character of God and that God's overall is his faithful redeemer. Just like God had been faithful to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, He knew God would be faithful to redeem him as well. And He knows that God is at work even when He can't see Him. And that is our faith. That is our trust. That is our confidence. God is at work as a faithful Redeemer even when we cannot see Him, when we experience pain. And He provides this perspective for His brothers, doesn't He, Joseph? He provides perspective for His brothers. He tells them, oh, they sold them to slavery. I... He says it was God. I can't imagine that. Can you, can you imagine if your family sold you into slavery? <laughs> Sometimes, I, you know, I, I'm sure my family wanted to sell me into slavery. <laughs> I was the youngest. I was always the easiest to live with. So although they sold him to slavery, he says it's really God who sent me ahead of you. It must have blown their minds. They were terrified, the other translation says. They were just dismayed. They were on their faces thinking, Oh my gosh, what's he going to do? It's Joseph. That wasn't a good moment for them. And then he says, No, God sent me ahead to provide for you, to prepare a way to preserve your life. In the midst of the as compassionate as brothers. See, you know what he does? He sees they're upset and instead of rubbing their noses in it, don't we want to do that at times? Rub, or rub people's noses in what they've done? See? He doesn't do that. He see, instead of rubbing their faces and he tells them not to be distressed. He says, don't beat yourselves up over it. Don't be angry. Can you imagine? He should have been angry with them. He could have enjoyed making them squirm and be distressed and upset. He could have punished them and he comforts them instead. And he speaks shalom, peace to them. True and lasting peace. He didn't ignore the facts. Somebody else who Joseph was a picture of who was sent ahead to prepare a way. He was the firstborn among many brothers, it says, and that's Jesus. Jesus was sent to prepare the way for us to be reconciled to God. And, and Jesus tells us to not be distressed once we've been forgiven by Him. We're not to be angry with ourselves. Maybe you're struggling, feeling like you should st- He should still be angry with you. Tells us not to make up for our mistakes. We can go in peace, realizing we've forever been made not guilty. If you have placed your faith and trust in, in Jesus for His atoning sacrifice, you've been made not guilty forever. And that, not only does Joseph do that for his brothers, he does it at great cost himself. He prepares a place for them. He makes them dwell in the best of the land. He promises to provide for them, to keep them safe. Sound familiar? You see, Jesus goes ahead to prepare a place for us. And He says, if it were not so, I would not have told you. In my Father's house there are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And He says that He'll be with us and never leave us. He won't forsake us. He'll, he'll keep us safe in the midst of famine. And these brothers are not just restored to each other. They're, he's restored to Benjamin. He's restored to all his brothers. They weep and they, they've restored back to sweet fellowship with Him after 22 years. Must have been a lot of catching up, huh? Could you imagine that reunion? 
God brings them together. It makes it clear that God was uniting them into a people who would be a blessing to all nations. He was fulfilling His promise to Abraham. He was restoring and reconciling them. It was a beautiful, amazing sight. And God's at work in our lives, restoring and reconciling. You know, but most of the time, who do you, who do you like to identify with in the story? I like to identify with Joseph, don't you? I like to identify with Joseph and I like to identify with the various heroes in the biblical stories but in this account we're really not meant to identify with Joseph as if we're like him. You know, we don't like to identify with despicable characters and yet we were the brothers in this story. Not only do we not have redemptive qualities but we're deceitful, we're cowardly, spineless, self-centered, greedy liars. And yet Jesus freely forgives us at great cost to Himself. He endures pain and suffering our place. He, Jesus left His rightful place at the right hand of the throne of the Father. He was the Creator. He breathed life into man. And yet He humbles Himself and becomes a man and subjects Himself as a lowly human. Jesus who alone deserved worship and adoration and respect. He was left alone by his closest friends. He was despised by his brothers, rejected by mankind. He rightly could have demanded that they worshipped him, that we worshipped him. He could have, could have made them bow down before him, but instead his own people mocked him and spit on him. That's what Jesus did for you and for me. And the ultimate act of selflessness that put Judah's act of selflessness in perspective... Jesus offered Himself as a substitute in our place. Instead of making mankind pay for sins eternally in hell because we deserve to, He offered Himself as a substitutionary atonement, a willing sacrifice in our place. And Jesus, taking the wrath that we deserve, takes the scorn, become, became abandoned for us in order to become our reconciliation. You see, God reconciles His people to Himself. It was a real cost in order to restore, uh, to experience a real restoration and a real reconciliation. Jesus, here's a cool thing. Jesus has become our shalom, our peace. He speaks words of peace to us now and He tells us, peace be with you. Don't be, don't be fearful. Believe on Him. God's at work to the life of Joseph, securing the salvation of His people. But Joseph had to endure pain and suffering in order to save His people. There was no other way in this life. We may have to endure pain and suffering as well. But here, God used the pain and suffering of Joseph to secure the salvation of His people. And God used the pain and suffering and real hurt and eventually the death of Jesus to bring salvation for all who repent of their sins and believe in Him. And right now, though, we may not see God at times in the midst of our pain. You may be going through pain now. All those questions I brought up at the beginning, you may be experiencing suffering and hardship, pain. But God's at work. He's not punishing us. For all those who have placed their faith in Him, all of, all of those who He's adopted as His children, as His chosen people, He's not punishing you any longer. He's making us into, your, into His image even though we don't see it. He's not abandoned us even when we feel like we're in the pit. He's not angry with His children. He's able to deliver me from these circumstances and if he does not we can trust him God really is good God really does love you 
He hasn't left you alone, even though it may feel like it. We need to know those things, don't we? God's not angry with you if you've repented and placed your faith in Jesus for your salvation. He's now no longer against you. And isn't that good news? When you humble yourself, God is no longer opposed to you in pride. He gives grace to you. If He didn't spare His Son, maybe you're struggling this morning with guilt and overwhelming guilt. Maybe you, you have placed your faith in Jesus. Maybe you're a Christian and yet these waves of guilt seem to come. Let me ask you a question. If God didn't spare His Son, how can you think you're still guilty? He's forgiven you completely. If God punished Jesus, you don't need to be distressed any longer. He speaks words of peace to you. Don't be angry with yourself for your past sins. Tell the accuser of the brothers, I'm not guilty anymore. And we're kept secure in God. He says we're actually seated with Him in heavenly places. He's, he's, our place with Him is secure. He's guiding us all along the way. Even though Romans 8.35, it tells us we go through tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness, peril of sword. Nothing, here's the good news, nothing will separate you from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. Scripture does not gloss over problems, real problems. It doesn't pretend like problems don't exist. And I'm very glad for that. In the midst of these things, through pain, suffering, hardship, famine, God's at work and He's victorious. And through Jesus, we overwhelmingly conquer, it says. Even though we be faced with many things, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love, the compassion of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hebrews 2.8, we don't have time to read it. it it tells us that even though we don't see that everything's placed in subjection to Him, one day, one day He's going to finally put all things under His feet. You see, Jesus has tasted death and suffering for us. And He's made us like Him through suffering in our place. He's destroyed already the one who has power over death. That's the devil. And we... We who rightly deserve, we, we rightly deserve lifelong slavery. Here's the good news. Like the brothers of Joseph deserved slavery for their crimes, we've been delivered. We no longer are subject to lifelong slavery. And not only that, Jesus helps us as the children of Abraham. He's merciful and a faithful high priest. What's the main idea in all this? What's the big idea? What's the big point? It's, it's just this. God mercifully changes His people. God's changing each and every one of His children here this morning. God mercifully is changing you. He's lovingly bringing conviction. If you're experiencing conviction, it's because He loves you. And why is that? So He might reconcile you to Himself. Go ahead and have the band come on up. And, uh, if you want to stand for a moment, please. There's a quote I want to share with you. You know, on top of the amazing forgiveness that we've received and the promise of overcoming through Christ, Jesus has gone before us. God has sent Him ahead of us to prepare a place for us of true peace, of true safety, true security. 
where all of our deepest longings will be satisfied. We're going to be brought into that true promised land. And, and I love the way C.S. Lewis, he phrased it, he says, at present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of the morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see. But all the leaves, <laughs> all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. In this life, there's pain, there's suffering, there's hardship. God may or may not deliver us in this life, but one day we will get in because God, God has reconciled us to Himself. He'll make us pure. He'll make us fresh. He'll make us mingle with the splendors of His Son.